Welcome to the fifth episode of the Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. In this episode, we'll be focusing on gender equality with particular emphasis on the role of human resources in driving positive change. It's a timely discussion with International Women's Day taking place on Friday the 8th of March. The theme for 2019, according to the United Nations, is Think Equal, Build Smart, Innovate for Change. Research conducted by the organisation suggests that at a global level, approximately 740 million women currently make their living in the informal economy, with limited access to social protection, public services and infrastructure that can increase their productivity and income security. For example, they report that women do 2.6 times more unpaid care and domestic work than men, with only 41% of the world's mothers of newborns receiving maternity benefits. In the UK and Ireland, legislative protections should safeguard against discrimination and harassment, as well as promote equality between men and women. But nonetheless, problems persist. Indeed, in 2018, research conducted by the accreditation body Investors in People found that 73% of men and women in the UK believe that gender discrimination occurs in the workplace, with over half of female respondents stating that they have personally experienced it. To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Jill Min, Strategic HR Director for the Northern Ireland Civil Service and former Director of Organisational Development at Belfast City Council, and Dr Denise Curry, Senior Lecturer and Programme Director of the MSc in Human Resource Management at Queen's Management School. Welcome Jill, Jill, Denise, thank you for being here. Thanks Laura, thanks for the invite. Well, can I start by asking you, what does gender equality mean to you, Jill? Well, I mean, I suppose um, by definition, feminism is a belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Um, And um, I will personally say that I am totally a feminist, so I I go along with that belief. Um, What I do think is it's, it's very clear that it doesn't mean that men and women have to be the same. But it does mean um, that their different behaviours, aspirations and the needs of women and men are considered and valued and favoured equally. Would you take a similar approach, Denise? Absolutely. Took the words out of my mouth, Jill. (laughs) Um, I suppose for me, it's about um, giving everyone, regardless of gender, uh, the opportunity to make choices without limitations. Um, And uh, yes, again, reiterate your point, Jill, is about valuing um, the differences across uh, genders equally and honestly just treating everyone fairly. Um, So, yeah. Uh, it's and, and underpinned by although that feminist um, uh, approach as well. And just for a bit of context, this is discussion is really focused around the role of HR because both of you have expertise within this area. Most of us these days work in organisations with an HR department or function, but we mightn't be fully aware of all of the different things that fall within their remit. What's the role of a modern HR professional, Jill? Well, I often ask myself that question every day. No, I mean, I, I, I do think that with the HR, it, it, it genuinely spans every industry and every sector. Um, it, there are a huge range of jobs in HR. and um, There are specialisms, there are generalists. You know, there's such a, a different raft of career opportunities. Um, and, you know, it can sound a bit corny, um, but really it's about, um, you know, HR supporting an organisation to achieve its success through its people and again you know sounds a bit trite 
But the most valuable resource that any organisation has is its people. And it's about getting the most out of them, um, making sure that they perform, they reach their highest potential. Um, and again, you know, it, it's really about making sure that you have the right people but with the right skills in the right place. Um, you know, there are so many aspects to HR. There's recruitment, there's learning and development, workforce planning, diversity and inclusion, which is some of the, the issues that we're talking about here today, employee relations, all those sort of things that everybody loves, like absence, discipline and grievance um, and complaints. There's pay and reward. But I also think it's really important that a modern HR function understands how to strategically manage the human resources in line with the organisation's intended future and strategic direction. For many people, would HR be the first port of call if they were experiencing issues around discrimination or harassment within the workplace? I think it can be, you know, and I uh, and you know I take real pride in almost being, if you like, the objective, the co- you know, the the conscience of the organisation. Sometimes things happen; um, they aren't wittingly, you know, put in place. They don't mean um, for these things to happen. And and there is, you know, there is an element of HR about being that independent eye, you know, trying to weigh up from both sides, meeting business organisations, but also understanding that you are dealing with people. Um, now, a line manager should, I suppose, in many ways be the first port of call, but if that manager is actually maybe potentially part of the issue, then it is really good that we can be that objective um, you know, side to the organisation. Denise, you obviously see this from a different perspective as the programme director for the MSC in HR. From what Jill has described, does this equate to the type of roles you're trying to prepare your students for? Absolutely. And I suppose one of the first models in terms of theoretical um, learning for our students is that we refer to Ulrich and we talk about the importance of being a strategic partner and contributing to the overall performance of the business, as well as um, looking from the employee perspective and championing their needs and um, ensuring there is a fair and equal um setting in the work in the workplace um, so but overall we also ensure that our students coming through the program um, think about the ethical and um, the diversity dimension of uh, their role um, in HR and often we would talk about to what extent are HR the conscience of the organisation um, and how can that they enable more ethical decision making right across the organisation as well. Um, sometimes there's the argument that the HR department should solely look after that, but actually they should really be enabling that right across the organisation so everybody takes ownership of um, driving the business in an ethical way. Sounds like there's really been quite significant shifts in the last number of decades in relation to HR. In terms of the gender equality literature within HR or the practitioner literature, what would the main debates be at the moment? Well, I think I've uh, listed or talked about the main debates around um, gender equality. We might be here all day. Um, so I suppose, you know, in terms of my reading and my understanding, there's about uh, three or four I'd, I'd probably highlight. Um well, first of all, you know, it's really important to acknowledge the progress that um, we have come in terms of gender equality. Women are seeking um, more employment, uh, are being promoted more. There is, seems to be a fairer treatment at work. Um, 
uh, women in the workforce, there are greater numbers, and um, they're progressing to, to higher education, and um, there's a larger proportion securing managerial positions, and that's all good news. Um, I suppose those there's acknowledgement there's still room to improve and we still need to make improvements. And I think um, part of the challenge is, is that there is still ongoing occupational segregation, for example. Um, so whether that's from how girls and boys grow up and the message they're given in a social context and the guidance they're given around careers and so on in school, that sometimes boys and girls are segregated into um, stereotypes uh, and um, uh, typical uh, occupations. And... What is most concerning is that, I suppose, if you look at the wider social context, um, females are more generally in caring prof uh, professions um, uh, compared to males. And what I find most concerning is that in these caring professions, such as uh, care workers delivering domiciliary care for our elders in society versus um, childcare um uh, professionals delivering care for our youngest in society. These are the real vulnerable um, sections in society. Yet, we, do we value these occupations? Um, we pay them minimum wage. So there's a big question here about the structural issues about what we value in society and, and the implications that has for gender. Um, and uh, so there's a big discussion about occupational segregation and how we can uh, overcome those challenges and of course there's been um, lots of efforts to encourage females in STEM roles and to widen um, their ambitions and so on and there's been great successes in that but there is obviously a long way to go. Um, I suppose then, I mean secondly one of the major things around um, gender equality is the continuation of discrimination in the workplace um, and, and maybe, Jill, you, you uh, will continue to see this in, through your role as Labour Relations Agency on the board. Um, but regardless of all the legislation in place to protect um, females from discrimination, whether that's maternity discrimination or pregnancy, um, there is still evidence that it exists. Um, now, I could discuss a, a, a range of studies that um, show that. Um, but actually... There's a recent study from DCU um, who, who have highlighted these issues and the challenges that females come across when entering back into work after maternity or through pregnancy. And there's a real uh, dichotomy between an employer approach to this. Employers can often take a real positive approach and think of maternity as an interlude and, uh, and think of the female's career as a very long-term um situation so there's lots of supports there lots of you know inductions back to work and on the other hand you know we have these employers who think it's of it as a major disruption and that um their female career is in the very short term and you know that does you know limits the um female's ability to progress and so on so you know what what can we do to help employers uh, maybe lean towards that uh, former um, approach by just thinking of this as a short interlude, let's support um, females back into the, the workplace after maternity. Um, and then, you know, we don't have to mention around sexual harassment as well, you know, and the um, the mobilisation of the um, Me Too and Us Too and Time's Up um, hashtags and what that's done for actually mobilising feminism and creating solidarities across women. I think that's been a really positive um, uh, 
um, progress in, in the last number of years. Um, and uh, there's been a raft of academic literature in terms of the implications for that and how, what impact that's had in organisations and how females view themselves. Um, and you suppose, lastly, you can't escape um, the recent discourse as well in terms of gender equality around lean in um, versus lean out versus, you know, the structural changes that need to be need to happen to um, address gender equality issues. And I think Cheryl Sandberg, um, her message about leaning in, although she did recognise all the structural changes that need to occur, um, the message about leaning in has been popularised. And my concern is that it actually... Um, it gives females the responsibility for the problem and females the responsibility for fixing the problem. So they are required to lean in, take on responsibility for doing better at work and, and so on. And um, although there are, there are structural issues that also need to be addressed, um, so it's important to take a, a balanced uh, view of that. And often that message is very much directed at white privileged uh, women in professional services, for example. So it's really important and a key um, thread in the current literature is about that intersectionality of gender equality with other aspects of discrimination. Um, uh, what does it mean for um, gender equality alongside race, disability, um, religion, sexual orientation and so on? All those other discriminative uh, issues um, need to be acknowledged as well as gender equality. It's easier to lean in if you've got a huge amount of support yes. behind you, but if you don't have that support then you might well just topple over and you think about those additional issues, you know, single parents, persons with disabilities and so forth that all make it much harder for people to actually lean in. Yes. And really just a huge amount of issues there. I mean, going back to the statement about um, the segregation of roles, and I've seen that from both sides. I had a student last year who spoke to me about how he didn't actually want to study business, he wanted to do primary teaching but when he raised this with his family and with his friends that's not a job for a boy that's not a job for a man he ended up doing a business management degree actually he was really passionate about working with children hopefully he may now go down the line and do the likes of a pgce mm -hmm. but he had faced that from quite early on there just seemed to be an attitude that certain you know, jobs for girls and jobs for boys and despite the fact that we're in 2019 those problems persist and another issue that really stood out for me that you talked about was how these issues are treated by employers on more than one occasion, I have had people from business tell me I would avoid employing a woman of childbearing age because sure, they're just going to go off on maternity leave. And I think people are better now about not making those comments out, li out loud. But I would imagine that there's certainly quite a few people who do think like that. Yeah, I mean, in my research, it was astounding. Um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission um, asked you to do a survey to understand these manager attitudes and just seemed to highlight a few of the statistics. Um, Almost a half of employers agree it's reasonable to ask women if they're having young children um, during the recruitment process. 44% um, of employers agree that women should work for an organisation for at least a year before deciding to have children. Um, I mean, it's solely their decision. Um, 
let's see, and 40% of employers claim to have seen at least one pregnant woman in the workplace take advantage of their pregnancy. Um, and, you know, there's half of employers agree that there's sometimes resentment amongst employees towards women who are pregnant or on maternity leave. So I find those statistics quite astounding really They're, it's quite high and um, it does then explain you know why we need to encourage organisations to take a more positive um, view of how we manage maternity and pregnancy uh, for females in the workplace Absolutely Jill what would you say the barriers are um, in terms of achieving sort of gender equality within the workplace? Well, well I was actually going to say that the barriers have changed from when I had first applied for my my job, my very first sort of professional HR job, but haven't heard those statistics. I'm afraid they haven't changed that much. Um, the very first job I ever had an interview for, they asked me, did I plan to have children? Wow. Um, and I told them that they needed uh, a good HR person oh, because, wow. and they asked me to sit outside and then they brought me in 10 minutes after and said, okay, the job's theirs. But uh, the job was mine, but I think it was more fair of litigation than anything else um, but actually I think that now the hardest thing I mean it's, it's interesting you, you set out all those issues and for a large public sector organisation I mean I would view us very much as a microcosm of society and you know if you, if you look at where we are I think actually the barriers that women face now are more sort of cultural and potentially around stereotypes and those unseen barriers so I know for example that um, in the public sector and particularly in the Northern Ireland Civil Service where I, where I am you know there are excellent policies and procedures terms and conditions to support that but it's about making sure that we actually live and breathe those in terms of, of values. Um, and, and I also think that a big issue f- for women in terms of progressing and, and staying in employment is actually that we are evaluated against a masculine standard of leadership. I mean, that's the that's the bottom line. There is a view, there are certain, you know, things, certain stereotypes around leaders, you know, assertive, authoritative, dominant behaviour. Those are all male traits and those are what people inherently, you know, maybe unconsciously see as being a good leader. So men are seen as the default leaders. And back to your point, you know, so in order then to be a good leader, women need to change. You know, so women need to go on the um, confidence building training programs, the public speaking training programs, the whatever else, you know, whereas actually it's not about women needing to change. It's around changing those stereotypes and understanding that actually a whole range of perspectives, values, behaviours actually brings a better way of working brings you to a better decision point and it's not about you know there being a standard stereotypical good leader um so i i think that those sort of unseen stereotypical unconscious bias issues are really the biggest challenges but i'm horrified to hear that there are still the basic where people think it's an issue employing somebody who might get pregnant i mean only women can get pregnant you know it is just incredible to think that that still goes on so I think there are just so many challenges it, it's not true and really what an organisation has to do is to put in place actual you know um, interventions to remove those barriers it, it's just not going to happen otherwise and it's not up to the women to change.
what I really took away from that was a real question about whether there's a difference between the values that some organisations are espousing and then when they're asked an anonymous question, mm -hmm. the values that they're actually living within their organisation. And that fits in with what you just said there, Jill, about the fact that um, whenever we see these statistics, they maybe reveal a much darker side of mm -hmm. things than we perhaps realised. And then in terms of the discussion around leaders, what I found was really interesting is that so many of those people that we held up maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago as these examples of, of high quality leadership are many of the ones that ended up sort of falling by the wayside. People involved in everything from high profile business scandals related to fraud to allegations of sexual harassment and so forth without naming any names. But they were at one time viewed as being exceptional leaders and now we look back and realise that to a large extent it was probably just a facade, um, a lot of bluster and maybe there is a real need to look at those other types of leaders, the ones that are just getting on with the job, producing high quality results, but without the um, without the glitz and the glamour that is frequently associated with leadership. Mm -hmm. Would you agree, um, Denise, in terms of what Jill has just said there about the barriers that exist, that they are cultural as well as the structural side of things? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and it is yeah a, a cultural shift in organisations often. Um, and I suppose, I mean, we talked about leaning in, um, but is there a case for leaning out and um, ensuring that we adapt and we really analyse our policies and processes to try to figure out where the systemic issues are? Um, and and address them. So it's it's a difficult task. Um, and you know, organisations, for example, have um, initiated lots of training programmes around unconscious bias, um, which is great progress to make people more aware of the decisions that they're making and and you know, um, what their their unconscious bias could lead to. But um, at the same time, the effectiveness around these training programmes is somewhat uh, questionable still at the minute. We need a little bit more evidence to um, show us how effective these are. But at least things are moving, hopefully, in the right direction. And um, these conversations is, is becoming much more high profile. It's becoming up front and centre in organisations. So that's a real positive thing, um, I suppose, for... Uh, for many of us. Um. Absolutely. Jill, you alluded there to working in the public sector. For anybody who's listening who's not aware of the size and scope of the civil service, how many employees um, did the HR team look after? So we look after a, a mere 23,000 employees. Um, so obviously there are nine government departments in the Northern Ireland Civil Service and the whole range of departments from health, justice, education, economy to agricultural and rural affairs. So, um, and as I said, you know, everybody, I think, I think the civil service suffers a little bit um, from, you know, a pen pushing image, um, but there are such a range of, of jobs across the civil service. So 23,500 staff. Um, providing services to the people of Northern Ireland right across the whole of Northern Ireland. Um, so, so it's a huge task. And we're very much, you know, moving, I think, you know, changing, shifting that debate from around the sort of compliance, if you like, um, 
there is a real recognition um, at the at a senior level in this in the civil service and across the civil service that you know getting the stats right isn't isn't just what it's all about. Now that obviously is an issue. Um, like many public sector organisations, we have we are half and half, if you like, in terms of male female but have historically been underrepresented at the most senior levels. But there is a significant shift there. We've gone from about 18% um, female at senior levels to um, over 30%. You know, and that is a good, that's, that's often, you know, articulated as the tipping point, if you like. But there is a recognition that it's not just about diversity. It's about proper inclusion, you know. So do you actually have teams of people who think differently um, and who are challenging the debate? and opening up that debate. So, um, yeah, huge task, um, but uh, we're slowly getting there in the civil service. And, we, you know, we've made really good progress over the last couple of years. So onwards and upwards. One of the areas where diversity is a real strength is in terms of decision making Absolutely. and making good quality yeah. decisions. And it sounds like that there's greater scope for that in organisations like the civil service where there is a focus on increasing the amount of diversity. There's no doubt, you know, and you often hear about the business case, if you like, for diversity. Um, and, and I think people do. I think, you know, private sector see that about attracting talent and making good decisions. But the business case for me, for the public sector, for the civil service, for diversity and inclusion is so strong. The bottom line is we have to um, be representative of the citizens that we serve. If we don't look like the people that we are serving, you know, how can we, if we don't think like them, how can we take those policy decisions? How can we look at the legislation? How can we provide our services? You know, so it is incredibly important. Um, There is a really strong case for diversity in the civil service and you know it is as I said shifting away from the sort of policies and procedures we have a new um, people strategy we agreed last year and you know basically the heart of that people strategy is diversity and inclusion so you know it is it is written large throughout it not just in its in the actual strategy itself but we're applying that lens to everything that we do. It was almost a light bulb moment for me there. You referred to there being 23,000 people and it's a a huge number um, of staff within any organisation. But you've got this whole other issue that those 23,000 people are serving a population of 1.8 million. And they are the ones that will be instituting policies and process processes often in quite sensitive areas and areas where there is huge opportunity to both right wrongs but also to make mistakes and so as a result it's so important to get that right and to be representative. And and, you know so important that there isn't groupthink, so important that people can bring you know their authentic selves to work Um, and that's why I'm saying you know we must have an inclusive you know, workplace culture. It's not just about saying, well, you know, we're 50-50 and we represent the, the, you know, we're representative of of the people that we serve. It's more than that in terms of of data and statistics. It's about your actual mindset. And do we allow that? And do we actually capitalise on it in terms of our decision making and also in our day-to-day service provision? It's just so essential. It's it really just, is at the heart of it. It totally is at the heart of it. What do you view the challenges 
going ahead um, for the civil service in terms of equality and diversity? Well, I mean, you know, albeit that I have said stats aren't important, they actually are in that it allows you to dig into where you might be underrepresented. Um, we are, um, says she, over 50. We are an ageing workforce. So, you know, there is a real issue about us attracting young people. Um, and, and I do, I think that goes a lot to our image um, for a start. Um, I, we are underrepresented in terms of disabled colleagues, um, black ethnic minority so I think there is something around us you know being proactive you know not sitting back and hoping that those those things will change so we have embarked we're just about to embark on um an outreach programme and looking at those people who are probably furthest removed from the labour market and also those areas where we are underrepresented. So it's not about, you know, putting a job um, in the newspapers and hoping that people that apply, crossing your fingers isn't going to do it. So it's about actively outreaching. Um, I think there is, as I said, an issue potentially around our image. But, you know, things like going to Pride for the first time as an employer, um, you know, having International Women's Day events um, for the first time, you know, doing all those things and outreach measures really do help um, and and highlighting the range of of jobs and careers that we have in the civil service. That it's really a career that's open to anybody. Absolutely. You know, we have have engineers, vets, you know, school inspectors, you know, people in jobs and benefits office. You know, it is not, as I say, had um, somebody sitting in a sort of dusty old room pushing a pen. And by going out to those marginalised groups, there could be potential to tap a huge resource in terms of creative thinking, different thinking that can resolve those wicked policy problems that occur within the public sector. Yeah, absolutely. And I just feel so passionately about that. And, and, you know, I know that my colleagues do too. And, you know, it is is a long-term cultural change plan. We're not going to change things overnight, you know. But it is about using every opportunity that you have. So if we're about to externally recruit, as I said, how do we actually outreach to those people that we really do want to to come and join us as civil servants? So topical question that has arisen recently relates to the reporting on the gender pay gaps. In April 2017, reporting regulations came into effect in the UK that required organisations with over 250 employees to disclose their gender pay gaps in the hope that, to borrow a phrase from The Guardian, sunlight would prove to be the best disinfectant. Denise, do you think that will be effective in terms of bringing about change? Um, Well, there's arguments for and against it, I suppose. Um, you know, first of all, the the reporting of uh, gender, or gender pay gaps um, can be sometimes a little bit misleading and um, do not necessarily reveal any gender discrimination. Um, for example, there may be legitimate reasons for why there is a pay gap between men and women within a company. Um, for example, maybe the company might have a high proportion of IT jobs and that is um, like more likely to be filled by men at the minute, although that could change, or you'd hope that would change. Um, so there could be legitimate reasons but on the other hand equal pay um, it's it's about equal pay for equal work um, so what's uh, important is that we we look at the the value of work and how it uh, how it's paid for across um, various different genders I think it's really interesting recent case coming through the Court of Appeal um, 
at the minute from ASDA and a group of workers, mostly female, um, working on the shop floor have taken a claim around um, equal pay um, because their work is valued the same as their mostly male counterparts in the warehouse. And that has been an ongoing saga for a number of years, but it's um, now through to the Court of Appeal and it's kind of watched this space because that could have huge implications. But um, it just shows you that we need to look at, yes, equal pay and the value of work and and it's important to com- compare that um, and uh, yes yeah, so but in terms of gender pay gap reporting um, yeah it's I think it's it's it is a really useful tool to get organizations to start thinking about what it is um, they're doing to address these issues it's having the stats as Jill said you know to highlight an issue and then to dictate dig deep. So when they're reporting these figures, organisations need to understand the background to these figures so they can add a narrative to that. And that's what's really important. Um, So uh, for example, the Bank of England doesn't have um, very uh, impressive um, figures around this, but their argument is because they only hire economists who, there's only 23% of economists, I think, that are female, you know, coming through the ranks. So again, it's about thinking, well, what's a pipeline of talent and how does that then um, implicate your your figures? But it's a useful tool to expose these things and to dig deep and make the changes based on that data. I suppose from the fact that we've seen so many headlines about it, at least it's generating a bit of debate yes. um, within yeah. the public. I mean, already there was another article last Thursday in The Guardian where they're saying that this is effectively a watchdog with no teeth. So how much change will it bring about? But the argument was that, well, at least it's drawing attention to these issues. But what was interesting was that there were a number of sort of mathematical impossibilities being mm. reported in some companies Um submissions to government and also somewhere there were just zeros entered in every column because clearly they hadn't taken the exercise seriously. Um, Jill, would you sort of broadly agree that it's a bit of a blunt instrument? Well, well, no. I mean, yes and no. (laughs) In that, I I completely agree um, with what's already been said. um, But I do think, you know, in a way, what what gets measured gets done. Um, I think it's better to shine a light, quite frankly, than to not. Um, And if it raises the debate, but like you, I would agree, it's a case of, you know, not just focusing on the end figure, but saying to actually dig behind it and go, what's going on here? You know, is this that um, people are doing the same job and getting paid different rates, which, as we know, has been illegal from the 1970s? Or is it a case that some jobs has a sort of, you know, there's a higher value put on some jobs? Is it that there's not a pipeline? You know, are women not applying? I wouldn't leave it there, though. You know, why not? Why are they not applying? What is it that puts people off for applying for these types of jobs? How do we get the pipeline? What barriers could we remove, etc., etc.? So if it's used for the right reasons, I think it will actually quicken things up that's the bottom line you know it's a bit like quotas and all of those types of things people don't like them they rail against them but without it it's just going to be too slow yeah and i think you need to back that up it goes back to the uh, discussion we had at the start about occupational segregation and you know as you, you say the the choices that boys and girls make at such an early stage can have an impact then on the pipeline coming through so Absolutely. employers maybe need to get in there at that very early stage engage with careers advisors engage with schools to try to inform and um and influence decisions um at that age you know so uh, yeah, there's, it's a lot of a lot of work um, and 
some systemic real you know changes that need are required the potential to bring in a huge range of talent that were previously mm-hmm. being excluded. Whenever you do look at the literature, it's hard to get past um, some commentators who are arguing that, well, these issues have been resolved. What are you still going on about, at least in sort of North America and the UK, Ireland and the rest of, of Europe? Particularly, we hear controversial speakers like the Canadian academic Jordan Peterson, who argued that the gender pay gap is largely a reflection of innate differences between men and women in terms of their work-related preferences. From your experience, experience you're reading around this area what would be your view on this hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say um you know I, look it is a complex issue and I actually do understand in a way where he's coming from but I don't buy the you know it's women's choice not to you know they just don't put themselves forward it's a little bit like you know people saying that they don't put themselves forward for for um, politics you know the issue is why not you know and also what it does is it looks at where we are now but you know if you if you sort of have a view that we are largely a patriarchal society of course that's where we are now you know so I think I think I can understand um, why some people are going with what he's saying but I think they're absolving themselves of responsibility largely um, so I'm I don't buy his I just don't buy his arguments really and I think it lets a lot of people off the hook and I think it's a bit of a smoke screen you know quite frankly When you see the statistics that Denise cited in relation to um, employers and the likes of maternity leave and so forth I think it paints a really different picture Absolutely yeah, Well it's funny when you, um, you, you mentioned his comment about innate differences and I suppose that means are men and women biologically different and therefore should be doing different things um, and I mean there, there's quite a lot now coming for, through um, in terms of neurological um, research and differences obviously between men and women and I mean I am not an expert to fully uh, comment or praise this but um we see, for example, from the work of Gina Rippon who is a, a professor in psychology and uh, she dispels the myth that brains are gendered, you know, um, male and female brains are, are actually more or less the same. And the individual differences are actually conditioned through social structures as, as we grow up from, from no age right to adulthood. Um, so, you know, gender is argued to be very a complex socially conditioned uh, um uh, construct and um, so when he talks about innate differences in terms of you know your brain function and what women and male are, men are capable of um, I'm not totally convinced about that and yes I think it's more about how we're conditioned um, into certain preferences as we grow up potentially. There's lots of other arguments that would refute that and lots of other I think neurological science that would maybe uh, argue that as well but it's important to acknowledge and, and to keep an eye on this emerging um, research out there. But it also goes back to our you know our very first point is well what does gender equality mean for you and it is around you know allowing for different values, behaviours, beliefs and, and all of that so whether there isn't 
is or isn't an innate difference. It's allowing for those differences and allowing for them to have equal, you know, access. Uh, and and I think it is, as you said, it's it's largely as a result of societal issues that yeah. go way back for practically from the day you were born. I mean, you only have to look at those ads on TV um, for baby milk. Um, you know, where yes. where you see sort of the girls, the ballerina, and the boys with the abacus. You know, mm-hmm. and it's you know, so it starts from day one. Absolutely. Yeah. And then pushing back against that will just take time, but also awareness mm-hmm. um, of, of those subtle things that are shaping people's decision over the course of their lives. Yeah. And it's it's having, as we said, going back to sort of what is gender equality, as Jill said, it's making choices without those limitations and conditions that, you, you know, you've been, uh, that have been socially constructed, as you know, so um Trying to strip that back and, and giving more choice uh, um, to to all genders. Because the outcome should be better for everybody mm-hmm. within society. Absolutely. I mean, it is society as a whole that benefits from balance. So returning to the theme of International Women's Day, how can organisations think equal, build smart and innovate for change? Do you have any suggestions? <laughs> well, I mean, where do you begin? But I, I suppose for me, it is around, you know, looking at the evidence that you have. So, you know, whether it, it, it's your data, but it's looking behind it, you know, and it is also about one thing that I have really learned over the years is that if you actually, OK, you've got all your policies and procedures, but it's about um engaging with your people and asking them and listening to them. So, for example, you know, when I recently um, developed, led the development of the Civil Services Gender Action Plan, we, you know, spent a long time working with the Women's Network and working with focus groups with men, working right across all grades of the civil service to see what actually are the main issues here. You know, because quite frankly, you know, you could take a couple of days off work, write up a strategy, download it from the internet, look at best practice and research. But what is it, you know, on a day-to-day basis that is actually hindering gender equality or any form of equality in an organisation? So listening to people, hearing that and prioritising, picking two or three big game changers and actually implementing them, seeing them through, you know, back to your point, you know, is it just a bit fluff? You know, does it look look good? Is it something that you want to sort of report on? But actually some of these things might be wicked issues and somebody needs to do the heavy lifting um, and, you know, really intervene and remove those things for people in order that genuinely everybody can reach their full potential. I imagine you'd learn a lot more by listening to the people involved. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is sort of, you can start off with, you know, 30 actions that you might want to take. And actually, the more and more and more you speak to people, it might only, not only, but, you know, it might boil down to, as I said, two or three game changers. And that has, for us, been around flexible working, you know, and and around being able to apply um, in job share and things like that. But more importantly, the attitude to it, you know, not feeling that there's anything wrong um, with with you know going part time or or having a job share, um, so it's again it's back to the cultural thing that they are. That was the main thing that came through time and time again. So that's where we're focusing our efforts. 
and they'll hopefully bring about really long term meaningful change. Yeah, as so a result. Back to the point, you know, it's not a case of of writing a job share policy. We've got that. You know, it's about embedding it and getting everybody to understand the benefits of it, you know, and, and understand how actually it, it can bring about real cultural change. Denise, is there anything that you could suggest for organisations in terms of the factors identified building meaningful change innovation? Well, you know, I, I would agree with Jill. Definitely for any innovation, it's really important to build from the bottom up to listen, to um, get all stakeholders' perspective. Um, otherwise, the change that's implemented, there will be barriers in the way the results you know, will be unintended and, and not what you expect. Um, so absolutely from the bottom up, and it's important that listening exercise does happen. Um, and as well, I suppose it's to be bold when it comes to change. Um, and some of these issues are systemic and it's to, to kind of go over and above really what other organisations may be potentially doing, going over and above what you're, um, you're complied to do in terms of legislation. And I'm just thinking even in terms of shared parental leave, um, uh, and it's great now that uh, this is it should encourage males to take part in more of the childcare, um, and and to, uh, and should break down some of the barriers associated with uh, maternity leave and so on when females go off. But um, I suppose one of the examples I came across was Aviva, and there's been lots of issues around shared. Uh, Parental leave that the you know the uptake from males hasn't right. yeah I believe it's about two percent on average so it remains very low and I think I've read some surveys where the majority of respondents stated they felt it would be unusual for a man to take more than two weeks of paternity leave which really fits into a lot of what Jill was saying about yes we have these policies in place but if nobody's actually taking them up then they're serious yeah but um, what, issues but then why are they not taking them up so it's important to really understand you know the the reasons behind that and maybe it's because um the uh, parental leave um isn't isn't as generous say uh, for example compared to females so aviva have actually offered me um their female and male staff parental leave that's equal um and they get you know 26 weeks at whatever it is I don't want to quote a, a wrong figure but it's equal to what they offer their, their female staff and that has actually um, encouraged their males to undertake parental leave um, to a much more higher extent than is, is seen in the wider industry um, and that's a real positive feature in, in Aviva and um, it's obviously appreciated by their, their staff so do you know, that's a bold move Yes, um, but maybe that's what's required uh, to make these changes um, happen. And one that might actually attract people to come and work for yes, Aviva. Yeah. Not only does it signal their approach to their employees, but the fact that you're not going to be at a financial disincentive as a result of taking this opportunity up. But I think it's a, a complex issue. There's multiple reasons probably underpinning it. Some is families where it suits them better yes. for the mother to take um, all of the leave. Some financial impediments make it impossible and also some situations where I think men are worried about, uh, certainly there were reports about the culture within their workplace, meaning that it would be frowned upon. You know, why are you taking this even though it's absolutely available to you? So it sounds like there's still a lot of barriers to be broken down mm -hmm. in that. But then as Jill pointed out, if we actually ask people the questions and get the answers, then perhaps we can do something about this 
by, as Aviva have done, changing the financial status of the leave, um, making it clear that you will not be disadvantaged in terms of your long term career prospects if you take it up and so forth. And also there's been suggestions that you need someone higher up or people higher up in the organisation to do it first to set the tone um, and suggesting that this is something that is desirable and acceptable to do in that organisation. So finally, at the end of each episode of the podcast, I ask guests the same question. What do you think it means to be a good business today, either generally or from the perspective of gender equality? Any thoughts, Jill? Well, for me, in terms of the business that I'm in, which is public sector and specifically the civil service, it is about being representative of the society that we serve. Um, It's very much about being a workplace where everyone can bring themselves, they're a authentic selves to to work Um, and that it's not just that we are diverse um, but that we are genuinely an inclusive um, workplace culture so for me that would be you know my epitome of success. It must make an enormous difference for people to be able to come into the workplace and be their authentic selves. Must just lift a burden. No, absolutely. And we, you know, we really found that when we did, we did um, some some work around specifically around LGBT. You know, and people were saying that they knew that the, that the policies and procedures were there to protect them. They never actually thought they would suffer, you know, harassment or discrimination. But just the general day to day, you know, chatting about, you know, husbands, wives, and etc. Things. Like that banter all of those types of things so that really hit home to me about how it must feel to not be able to bring your true self to work to be fearful that if you do reveal your true self that you will suffer and um, discrimination or harassment yeah, as a result I, of that and i think the sort of their view was that they wouldn't necessarily suffer anything explicit like that but they just wouldn't be seen as fitting in and it's that whole issue of sort of you know the in group and the out group mm. and when you think about how much time you spend at work and how important it is you know and how you you want to identify and you want to feel comfortable in the workplace so for me you know if we could really get to that point it would it would just be major success and just free people up to do their jobs absolutely and perform you know that's when people are going to perform at at their best that's when they're going to have the best ideas that's when they're going to do their best work absolutely Denise do you have any thoughts on what it means to be a good business um well good business in terms of yes good performance wise and good socially and good ethically I think it all ties together um so you know greater productivity comes from more engaged cultures organizations where people are led better more effectively where they have more voice um and as well around core values that almost transcend self-interest so people are working together around these core values that will encourage them to do the right thing even though when maybe the right thing is hard to do um so uh, it's it's about that that culture there but the important message is that often when that's achieved there is really good results for businesses in terms of productivity and their performance at the end of the day Sounds like somewhere I would like to work and I'd imagine <laughs> that most others would as well. You're coming to work for the civil service. <laughs> I, I worked in the public sector um, and find it to be a, a fantastic experience. And I think there was real efforts in the time that I was there, certainly real efforts, not just to state policies and, as you say, put things up online, but actually to really meaningfully engage with people and make it an environment that people were pleased and happy to come in to Absolutely. work and um, so no I can definitely offer first-hand experience um, of the benefits well, of working we've, in we've the public more work sector to do, but we're certainly on the right journey. <laughs>
Thank you both so much for taking part today and thank you to the audience for listening. For more information on the Good Business Podcast or other work related to ethics, responsibility and sustainability, you can follow us on Twitter at QUB Ethics. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you.